Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased and honored to have with us Professor Patrice Guinefay. Professor Guinefay is director of the Raymond Aron Center for Political Research in Paris. His uh, book dealing with the early career of Napoleon Bonaparte, a uh, first volume in the multi-volume treatment was widely acclaimed. And today we are discussing his book, Napoleon and de Gaulle, Heroes and History, published by Harvard University Press. Welcome, Professor Guinefay. Hello. Morning. Uh, professor, what is the thesis of your book? Well, a uh, long time ago, maybe 20 years ago, I had been very impressed by John Bullock's book about Hitler and Stalin. And this book was strictly parallel history of these two characters and monstrous characters. For my my own characters, Bonaparte and De Gaulle, the exercise could not be exactly the same because more than a century separates them. My point is different in this book. It is from their legend on place in collective memory of the French to understand some French specificities, what we call with a kind of uh, provincial pride, our exceptions. Among them, our lack of unity, our so frequent revolutions, and civil wars. For French people, everything is subject to conflict and confrontation. Moments of uh, relative unity are very rare. And in hard times, when the country is close to dissolve, unity is artificially rebuilded around the charismatic character. Always an outsider, respectively to the political world, who acts just the sacred king acted in the past. Thanks to him, peace is back for a while, always for a while, only for a while, and country can take a new start. We are always looking for our savior. Each five years now, we hope the new president will be this savior. Of course, deception is as great as hope was. Perhaps because we don't have a constitution like the American people or a cohesive society like the English people, we look for a man. The common danger does not unite the French, it leads always 
them to tear themselves apart. If the figure, figure of the savior is particularly strong in France, it also testifies to our lack of maturity. We have never mourned the king. France, in fact, is a republic where no one is republican. That's uh, the starting point of my book. The French title of the book has a uh, subtitle of, quote, Two French Heroes, which, of course, is true, but could it be said that they are the same type of heroes? Yes, you are right. This opposition between a French hero and another who was a universal hero is at the center of the comparison. Napoleon was a man of the 18th century. If he became the emperor of the French, he never enrolled in a national framework. Of Corsican origin, as you know, he did not consider himself as a French citizen. What distinguishes him is precisely his independence from any roots, Corsican, Italian or French. He is the type already outdated at the time of the French Revolution that marks the beginning of nationalisms of the universal man praised in the Renaissance era. His own destiny catches his eye. France was only like a theater where he was able to express his genius. His fuel was not virtue, but only glory. De Gaulle is the exact opposite, the most ingrained and the least universal man of noble ancestry, a conservative middle-class education, de a devout Catholic, an army training, and the values he, and his values, sorry, and his values are like a resume of the pre-1789 France. He reminds us those servants of the king who served in parliaments, royal courts, and armies. One cannot imagine de Gaulle anywhere than in France. Bonaparte could have been Napoleon everywhere in the world, and he imagined to be Napoleon in the Egypt or later in Latin America at various times in his life. Would it be correct to say that you are skeptical of what is called global history? Would you agree to paraphrase Albert Seboul that it could be actually called Davos history? Yes, I agree with uh, this observation. Global history can be interesting, but often it's imbued with today ideology. Rebalancing a history judged too European-centered, deny the specificity on, on major importance of Western history since Greece, refuse to distinguish between the important and the least important, the Russian Revolution of 1917 on one side, or the breeding of snails 
in a remote village on the other side. More, by adopting a very large point of view, kind of world history, global history is, in my opinion, the very opposite of history. History's object is not universality, but the particular. But global history is fashionable today because it corresponds to the actual globalization, economic globalization, which destroys separations and borders to consider the world as an homogeneous and unified space. As we see today, today, really today, separations are rebuilding, but on other bases like race, sex, or religion. And I think that global history will decline very soon now. Do you adhere to the Hegelian idea of the hero? Not really, because uh, I don't live in the 19th century or at the beginning of the, of the 20th century. I don't believe that the world is led by something like, like that, like uh, laws of history. I don't believe in the existence of the laws of history and even less in the idea of an end of history. I believe that history is unpredictable, chaotic and tragic. Having said that, I believe in the power of individuals to influence the course of history, for better and for worse. Hitler did not respond to any fatality or necessity. He was not the representative of German bourgeoisie or of German industrial interest. He just took advantage of a chaotic situation after First World War to impose his own agenda. For the better, to be provocative, a bit provocative, we can cite Ronald Reagan, who, after the Jimmy Carter years on Vietnam War, restored confidence and faith in America's future. Napoleon, who ended the Revolutionary War and rebuilded a state and a society. And de Gaulle, who allowed France to overcome the humiliation of 1940 and later, 20 years later, to give an end to colonialism. In your introduction, you compare Bonaparte de Gaulle and Louis XIV. Are not the latter two personages closer than the former, the universal man hero? Yes and no. Louis XIV belongs specifically to French history. Yes. But in the 18th century, most European monarchs tried to resemble him. Many Versailles-inspired castles or palaces can be visited in Europe. So there is a clear demarcation between Louis XIV and Napoleon on one side and de Gaulle on the other side. Why did Bonaparte escape from Elba? 
Well, if you were Napoleon, could you imagine retiring and ending your days on such a small island? Chateaubriand said, could Napoleon end up cultivating vegetables in Elba? Of course not. He was a gambler. He had to try the impossible to add one more chapter to his incredible destiny. The English rulers understood that because finally they deported him to St. Helena. This time the game was over. Why did de Gaulle wait those five years between the implosion of the RPF in 1953 and the events of May 1958? Why did he not advance history? The RPF was a political mistake. By uh, 1944, de Gaulle was like France itself, a symbol of its re-established unity after war. Calling on all French, except those who had collaborated with the Germans, to join him regardless of their opinions. When he became, two years later, a party leader, he betrayed this image and he understood very quickly he had made a mistake and he retired to Colombay. There was bitterness in this retreat because in 1946 he had believed that French people would ask him to remain in charge. He was the, the head of government in 1944-1945. But nothing happened. The French people preferred to forget the warriors. After the, the RPF years, de Gaulle did nothing to regain power. He knew that the Fourth Republic will not have the strength to face a serious crisis situation. So he was waiting for the crisis which brought him back to power. Provoking the fall of the regime was the aim of the RPF, but not that of Gaullism. People will need him or not. Future will say, if the Fourth Republic had had the courage to impose a solution in the Algerian affair, keep it or leave it, de Gaulle would not have returned to power in 1958. But as early as 1957, he understood that the current government had no clear strategy in Algeria, so that his own time will come soon again. What did you mean by stating, quote, when one begins one's career like Jean d'Arc, one cannot end it like General Franco. Precisely like Jean d'Arc, Jean of Arc, he wants to restore the political order, she the monarchy, he the republic, by giving it better foundations. The role of a dictator no, was not his agenda. He was not a fascist or a revolutionary, but a conservative. He, was to, he wanted to restore the republic, 
not uh, to to blow it up. Uh, how involved was de Gaulle in the events of May 1958? In January uh, 46, de Gaulle, as I said, was the head of government. But one year after the end of war, he saw political parties of pre-war rebirth and political life resume as before the war, with, in addition, a very powerful communist party. Political elite, except Gaullist, was aspiring a new constitution which restored the power of parliament and diminishes the authority of the executive. Quite the opposite of what de Gaulle wants, who claimed for a profound institutional change, the one that will happen in 1958 with the Sith Republic. As he refused to be the head of a weak executive, he preferred to slam the door. He believed that people uh, will protest and ask him to keep in charge, but they let him go. How involved was de Gaulle in the events of May 1958? Uh, de Gaulle was politically very talented. Of course, he never appeared on the front line, but his lieutenants played a major role in the preparation of the coup d'état of 13 of May 1958. De Gaulle himself never assumed to have had contacts with the plotters. He just, at one point, gave a speech to say he was ready to come back in charge to re-establish peace and order. For all people who would like to perpetrate the coup d'état, the 13th of May uh, crisis is a model. What did de Gaulle mean? I'm sorry. How would you compare the events of May 1958 with the 18th Brumaire. Bonaparte was not so good. Finally, it was necessary to force the deputies to approve the coup, but the parliament of 18 Brumaire was not that of 13 of May. In one case, there were men who had gone through 10 years of revolution. In the other, all classic of the parliamentary system. Another difference is that Bonaparte was more military than de Gaulle, less patient. He did not know how to address to assemblies, to political assemblies, except to threaten them. But finally, the two coups d'état of 18 Brumaire and 13 of May are similar. They changed regime without violence with the consent of the legal authorities and the approbation of the majority of citizens. What did de Gaulle mean or hope that people would took, took him to mean by his remark, je veux la compris? I understood you. We are still discussing it to find out what he meant, I understood you. Does it mean? I understand your fears and hopes 
and I share them. Me too, I wish to keep Algeria French. Or does it mean, I have heard your demands and I will take them in account when it will be time to decide about the future of Algeria. I think, personally, the second hypothesis is a good one. French people of Algeria believed in the first interpretation and they felt betrayed. It was a sentence so vague that everyone could find confirmation of his own hopes. You make reference in the book to the decline of the subject of history in French schools in the last 50 years or so. Why? I don't know what is the, the situation of history's teaching in other countries. But in France, it has been attacked, diminished, disfigured since the 70s of 20th century for various reasons. Since the Third Republic, the function of history, of history teaching, was to unify the nation around a common history. It was part of citizenship education. But in the 70s, a wind of modernism blew over France with the presidency of Georges Pompidou, then that of Giscard d'Estaing. They, they thought that history was not very important. First, to find a job. Second, uh, because of uh, his its insistence of past and on a past who divide French people. They thought that the future was far more important than the past. In the 90s, the dream of a dreamy future collapsed, economic crisis, climatic anxiety, etc. And then history was condemned in the name of diversity. How to bring together, and that's a real problem, how to bring together individuals with increasingly diverse origins around a common history that is no longer that of all French people. Today, the trial against history is prosecuted in the name of reparation of the prejudices committed against minorities so-called descendants of slaves, women, descendants of colonized peoples, homosexuals, etc. Finally, the rise of individualism has turned against history. The very nature of the modern individual is to consider himself as an origin and an end his own end, without any ancestors or descendants, having no other ambition than to satisfy his own desires. Would not the key difference between the two men be as follows? A. Bonaparte was an adventurer and de Gaulle was not. B. Bonaparte was not a religious believer and de Gaulle was an ardent Catholic. C. Bonaparte disliked his father, or at least did not regard him highly, whereas de Gaulle loved and worshipped his father. I agree 
on the first two differences, A and B. Is the relationship with their respective fathers decisive? Literally, I do not know. But taken figuratively, it illustrates a fundamental difference between the two men, which brings us back to your previous question. De Gaulle knows that he is accountable to the past as well as to the future. He must comply with requirements that are stronger than him. To use the allusion to General Franco, when you are De Gaulle, you can, you even have to assume the role of Joan of Arc, you can be Franco. Napoleon, on the contrary, is a free man. He is a pure adventurer, and if he does useful work, it's only because in the 18th century there is no hero without a useful legacy. But if he can't freely choose what he has to do, he is totally free in the choice of means. The goal is not. From this point of view, as Nietzsche understood well, Napoleon is both the last man of the old times, of the Renaissance times, the last classical hero, and the first modern individual who claims to free himself from the weight of past and traditions. De Gaulle, for De Gaulle, the world is a heritage to preserve. For Napoleon, the world is a material to forge his own destiny. Harold Macmillan once stated that de Gaulle was a man of the 18th century. Would you agree? I don't agree with that. De Gaulle is too pessimistic to belong to the Enlightenment. Moreover, his Catholicism is too deep to be of the 18th century. On one side, de Gaulle seems to belong to the old friends, that of Louis XIV or St. Louis. On the other side, his virtues, his personal virtues, are those of the old bourgeois families, not very rich, of the end of the 19th century. You state that the period from the 9th of June, 1793, to the 15th of September, 1793, was, quote, the most mysterious in Bonaparte's life, unquote. Why so? Yes, it's during these few months that Bonaparte becomes Bonaparte, not yet Napoleon. He leaves Corsica, lands on the continent, and suddenly he changes at the contact with the French Revolution and war. As if circumstances suddenly revealed in him abilities no which, of which no one, not even him, had the slightest idea. Nothing special or extraordinary in him before that, before that moment. By the end of 1793, he is another man. We can't explain this change. That is a part of mystery, of enigma in his life. What was de Gaulle's relationship with Paul Renaud prior to May 1940? 
Paul Reynaud was a leading leader in the 1930s. He was a right-wing man and the first to measure the abilities of de Gaulle, an obscure staff officer at that time. De Gaulle, who had strong views on French defense policy and the reforms to be undertaken urgently, believed that he had found in Renault the mentor who would open to him the doors of the political world. Paul Renault was very aware of danger in the eve of 1940. He saw the disaster coming. But when war began in May of uh, 1940, he backed off. He was not enough tough to be de Gaulle. So this one left for London and let Renault disgrace himself. Why was de Gaulle's victory at the skirmish of Abbeville in May 1940 so important? Well, in itself, the, the battle of Abbeville from 28 to 30 May uh, 1940 was a negligible episode of the Battle of France, a final attempt to stop German offensive. In Abbeville, three weeks before to leave for London, de Gaulle saw the distress of French army and the courage, desperate courage, of soldiers. Additionally, de Gaulle had few experience of war at that time, compared to General Végan and, of course, to Pétain. This marginal fight brought him some military legitimacy he was still lacking, and it was very important for what follows when he will be in London. Why were François Furet and Raymond Aron so critical of de Gaulle? Ah. It wasn't just the communist and former Vichy collaborationist who hated de Gaulle. French liberals, like Raymond Aron or François Furet, had always grievance against him. They always suspected the sincerity of his statements towards democracy. They did not like his constitutional views too much in favor of the, of the executive power. They see in de Gaulle's popularity an illustration of Tocqueville's thesis. The French don't like freedom. They prefer equality, guaranteed by a strong power. Finally, they accused him of having played the magician and made the French believe that their country was still a great power, which it was not true for a long time. In doing so, in doing so said François Furet, as Raymond Aron, de Gaulle had not helped France to face a world that was changing fast after Second World War. There's something true in this. We, French people, we have more trouble with contemporary issues than many other people. Why do you say that in the realm of international politics that de Gaulle was an adherent to the Action Française writer Jacques Bainville? Oh, de Gaulle had read 
the, the works of Jacques Bainville about international politics. De Gaulle belonged to this so-called realistic school of diplomacy, considering states as main actors on the international scene, and considering that these states defend and promote permanent interests. For example, never De Gaulle mentioned the Soviet Union. For him, Soviet Union, Union was still the old Russia. In foreign policy, realism prevailed in De Gaulle's views, not universal and abstract concerns, but rights of nations, interest of states, respect for treaties, or raison d'état. When would you say that Bonaparte left the realm of moderation in international relations for that of expansion without object? I would say it was late, probably in 1812, at the time of the Russian campaign. In other words, after his remarriage in 1810 with an Austrian princess on the birth of an heir in 1811. Then he forgot that he was only a victorious general on the heir of the French Revolution. He believed he had been accepted by monarchical Europe as a cousin, a member of the club. Everything seemed possible to him, including this extravagant expedition to Russia. That was the moment the hubris started to rise up. From 1805 to 1809, he was not the only responsible for wars. It's true that because he was always victorious till then, he always considered war as an economic mean to resolve conflicts. But these wars are also were also imposed to him. This is true in 1805, in 1809, each time against Austria, and even in 1806 against Prussia. In 1812, it's all different. What does one make of de Gaulle's long-time correspondence with the pretender, the Comte de Paris? Do you agree with Julian Jackson that Offand, that de Gaulle was nostalgic for the monarchy? Absolutely, I agree with Julian Jackson on this point. But this preference never became a policy. De Gaulle was certainly royalist at heart, but republican by reason. He knew that the hypothesis of a restoration had long passed. History had decided. The monarchy is the French past, the republic is the present of France. But the pretendant, the Count de Paris, Count of Paris, was the heir of a long and rich history. His name was associated with the greatness of France. As such, he deserved the utmost respect. Don't forget that de Gaulle was a man of tradition, but he never considered re-establishing the monarchy in France. He did better. He gave to France institutions that associate republic and monarchy, 
a parliament and the president monarch, the past and the present of France. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? To never, to never desesperate of present times and to remind that in the most tragic situation, sometimes an unexpected solution uh, comes to light. And that often the simple influence of a man who is able to take the right decision, who knows to choose the words to diminish the, 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 uh, the despair of the population uh, can appear. And that uh, this is a great recourse in a tragic situation. On that observation, I would like to thank you so very much, Professor Guinefei. Thanks to you.